like to excuse the little ones through fifth grade. Oh, look, look, at, look at him go, Children's Church. And the rest of you are in big trouble. Just because that's what the message is about this morning is trouble. You know, it doesn't take very long in life, though. We don't even have to get to this age that these kids are in before we know about being in trouble, right? We seem to learn the, the definition of that word fairly early in life. Anybody remember the first time they were in trouble? I'm just, I don't think I do. <laughs> but uh, there's a story that's told of a Sunday school teacher. Uh, many of us can relate to that position and trouble. But there's a story told of a Sunday school teacher who uh, had a young group trying to teach the plan of salvation to her class, wanted to get her young minds used to the idea of grace by faith, right? So she said to the class, if I sold everything I owned, including my house and my car, if I had a big garage sale just to give all my money to the church, would I get into heaven? No, no, the children all answered her loudly. Well, then, if I, if I cleaned the church building every day and mowed the yard, made sure the pews and floors and classrooms were all kept neat and tidy, too, would I then get into heaven? The children replied forcefully, no. Okay, how about this, said the teacher. What if I came to church worship every Sunday, never missed a class of Sunday school? What if I drove a big van every week bringing all the kids in the neighborhood with me and invited everyone to stay afterwards for a meal that I myself would provide. Would that get me into heaven? And the teacher could hardly hear herself think through the screams of no from all points in the classroom. How then, the teacher responded, can I get into heaven? All of a sudden, from a rear corner of the classroom, a five-year-old boy jumped up and said, you gotta be dead! <laughs> now somebody was likely in trouble. We never really learn how to completely avoid trouble, do we? Songwriter Lee Hazelwood of These Boots Are Made For Walking fame once wrote, Trouble is a lonesome town. You won't find it on any map, but take two steps in any direction, and you're in trouble. It's true. And sometimes trouble comes looking for us instead of the other way around, doesn't it? Sometimes trouble uh, can seem an insurmountable thing. Mountain climbers, such as author and speaker Eric Weinmeyer, have learned that when trouble comes, you hang on and keep climbing, literally. Mr. Weinmeyer climbed the nose of El Capitan in Yosemite in 1996 and the summit of Mount Everest in May 2001. This was before his scaling the seven summits, the highest mountains of each of the seven continents. And by the way, in September 2002, this adventurer joined just 150 mountaineers who've accomplished this feat. In 2008, Eric added the Karstens Pyramid, the tallest peak in Australasia, to his list of scaled accomplishments, as well as a 2,700-foot vertical ice face in the Himalayas. I'm just curious, do you think there's a possibility through all his adventures over all these years, Mr. Weinmeier has sensed trouble coming. Time Magazine, of many others, has acknowledged the fact, honoring the man with a cover story, saying, there's no way to put what he's accomplished in perspective, because no one has ever done anything like it. His is a unique accomplishment and achievement, pushing the limits of what man is capable of. And if you're thinking, well, I've read about others who have climbed these mountains just like Eric, let me mention one other detail. This 50-year-old adventurer is also blind. 
Eric says, what's within you is stronger than what is in your way. This despite any trouble coming on the way up. And as we arrive in our final week of our Daniel Sermon Plan series, one that we began back, if you believe, at the beginning of February, this is exactly the point we want to take with us this morning. What's within you is stronger than what is in your way. Then what is in your way? The trouble that is ahead. And hang on to that thought. We left off last week at the start of a final vision given to Daniel. After he spent three weeks in dedicated prayer and mourning before God. If you'll open your Bibles with me. We're going to spend some time talking through the text this morning. Daniel chapter 11. We'll talk through some of the main details of this vision received by Daniel, and then we'll discuss how everything wraps up in chapter 12 with our highlighted text. I actually have finished coffee right here in the... No. Now, if you remember from last week, Daniel's in his 80s here. He's spent a lifetime serving God in exile. Because the Israelites wouldn't obey God's commandments and stay out of what? Trouble. Trouble. Deuteronomy 28, 36. This morning, as we discuss how the people of God will continue to have trouble, imagine that, or how trouble rather will come to them, some of these details should ring a bell for you, should maybe jump out at you if you've been following our sermon series. Let's jump in. Verse 2 says, chapter 11, this is via the Lord. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Verse 3 says, then a mighty king shall arise. Okay, so trouble for God's people, despite their return from exile. It's going to continue. Four additional Persian kings uh, after Darius, presently on the throne in verse 1, are coming. We'll know these rulers by the names of uh, Cambyses, Guamada, Darius. This, of course, is a different Darius. And finally, Xerxes. Now, the names of these first three kings may not immediately jump out at you, but perhaps the fourth one will. Xerxes is actually in power in the book of Esther. King Xerxes will eventually go to war against Greece. The mighty king of verse 3 in your text here, if you look here with me, this will be referring to none other than Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great was a guy who was called great because he called himself great. Some have greatness thrust upon them. Now go ahead and skim if you haven't already uh, through verse 4 in Daniel chapter 11. The text says, This mighty king's territory, quote, shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven. And this is exactly what will happen to the kingdom of Alexander the Great after he dies in 323 BC. This is in God's word. Incredible. But stay with me here because the text moves quickly on the timeline. The history books tell us that kingdoms uh, under four rulers after Alexander, these are going to be the under, by the names of John, Paul, George, and Ringo. Everybody paying attention? Try that again. Cassander, Lysimachus, Seleucus, and Ptolemy. You understand why I renamed them here? There's a reason. 
Go ahead and, and skim chapter 11 on Daniel, uh, in Daniel down through about verse 13. There's a lot of talk here in the text about a couple different kings. The Bible says king of the south and king of the north. As it does this, it specifically refers to two from this list on the timeline. Salome and Seleucus, respectively. Now you understand why I want to call them Ringo and George. But you know, as messy as the Beatles' breakup might have been, the breakup of Alexander the Great's empire will be even worse. And the Jews will be greatly affected. Continue to uh, skim your Bible here with me. Uh, Seleucus, the king of the north, he's going to eventually come close to reuniting the empire for himself. But a son of the Ptolemy Empire will find him, will murder him in 280 B.C. But the warfare is going to continue between the north and the south. This is the Ptolemy dynasty, the dynasty of Egypt and Palestine, the one, you know, directly affecting them, versus the Seleucid dynasty, the one over Asia. This is going to continue. And our text gives you some of these details through verse 20. Imagine hearing this. Imagine being Daniel receiving all this. But then if you'll start skimming with me again in the text at verse 21, we're going to arrive at, at another ruler, another ruler of the future, actually described in Scripture as a contemptible person. How would you like to be called that in the Bible? A contemptible person. Yeah, that's me. We actually mentioned this individual in our study from Daniel chapter 9. Uh, his rule was found in uh, 9 verse 25. Do you remember who it is? In 175 B.C., uh, King Antiochus Epiphanes of the Seleucid Empire will take rule. You may not remember our mention of him, and that's okay. It was, it was quick. But the Encyclopedia Britannica actually notes this ruler, Antiochus IV, as known for his encouragement of Greek culture and institutions. That's a really nice way of putting it. Antiochus IV uh, could be known for Hellenizing or founding and fostering Greek cities, this culture. But the word enforcement is probably more appropriate for God's people. He did this uh, in the Jewish temples by building statues to Zeus. This was his way of encouragement. You know, we don't like the idea of someone forcing their pagan religion or pagan law on us today, and this is exactly the trouble the Jews will suffer under his rule. One source before that we quoted during uh, Daniel chapter 9 will describe Antiochus in this way. His oppression of the, Jew, of the Jews he ruled over included the outlawing of their customs. Uh, this included circumcision, their monthly calendar, their dietary restrictions, even their observance of the Sabbath, everything that made them who they were. Antiochus would even make ownership of the Hebrew Bible, the books of Moses, a capital offense. This is when you know you're under persecution, right? And through verse 35 of chapter 11, Daniel receives yet another word from God about his brutal monarch, about this brutal monarch. But maybe we're wondering, well, what's going to stop this guy in his tracks, right? What's going to come through for the people of God? Well, the history books between the Testaments will tell us about a Jewish revolt under one Judas Maccabees. We can maybe talk about him another time. But our text today will give us another major reason for the survival of the Jewish faith. Look with, look with me, friends, here in Daniel chapter 11, verse 30. Now, there's a lot of history here, but that's what it is. Uh, Daniel 11, verse 30, reads, For ships of Kittim shall come against him, 
against you, Antiochus. Ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw and shall turn back. Ships of Kittim. You know, when I first read this text, I thought, you know, I have a box of these little guys in the parsonage right now, and I can't imagine any of growing to a point where they're going to threaten a world power. Must have been some big baby cats. But that's Kitten. This is K-I-T-T-I-M, Kittim. Kittim was originally the great-grandson of Noah, Genesis 10.4. This person settled in western Turkey in the eastern Greek Isles area. And this is interesting, too. Uh, we'll actually hear talk of his future generation's world conquest later. Do you remember the uh, Balaam? Numbers chapter 24, verse 24, will say, uh, Alas, who shall live when God does this? But ships shall come from Kittim. So this isn't the first time in Scripture we've heard this name. But who were the Kittim by this point on the timeline? The Greek New Testament, the Dead Sea Scrolls, render this word another way, the Romans. The Romans. See where we're going here. For the Jewish people, out of the rule of Antiochus into the hands of the Romans, almost like going from the frying pan into the fire, right? But what's incredible here, what's incredible here is how this Western world power of Rome, foretold in Genesis, would time and time again be revealed to God's people, even here throughout Daniel. Center stage of the world, the Romans would take around 200 years before Christ was born. And do we see how God's plan all unfolds? What kind of trouble was Rome? What kind of trouble coming were they for the Jewish people? Rome rose to widespread glory when a small state of land-hungry militarists took a cue in both technology and nationalism from the Greeks. And this is going to allow Rome to grow from just being a dot on a mid-Italy map to the meeting place of the world by the time of Christ. And this determination for conquest took decades. But Antiochus couldn't take down the Romans. And do you remember back in the second chapter of Daniel? This is incredible the way this all ties together. Back in the second chapter of Daniel, Rome was shown as the legs of the statue in the vision of Nebuchadnezzar. Chapter 2, verse 33, we talked through that. In Daniel chapter 7, Rome was uh, thought of as iron, seen as the fourth beast of the world empires. Da Daniel 7, verse 7. After uh, uh, 146 B.C., just 146 years before Jesus was born, Rome had become, as one commentary says, the dominant military republic of both the eastern and western Mediterranean areas. A big deal. When Antiochus Epiphanes decides that he wants to take down Egypt, and again, this is in your text here, Daniel 11, 25 to 30, this rising world power intimidates him just a little bit. Look with me here. Daniel 11, verse 30. He, he is Antiochus, shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Does this mean good news for the Jews? Not at all. Because verse 36 continues, the king shall do as he wills shall do as he wills. And look with me here. Look with me here in your Bibles at verse 36 through 45, just to see how beastly this fourth beast of Rome shall be. There's a reason why God is giving his people a heads up here. Verse 36 says, He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god. This is Caesar making his introduction to us. 
This is the way the Caesars thought of themselves. One author explains when Rome's great army would conquer a nation, the king who would submit of that nation, if you submitted, the king would agree to keep down their own sense of nationalism. They'd agree to pay taxes on time to the Romans. and In exchange, they'd be given a place of leadership. Now, you remember how this all worked out for the Sanhedrin, right? The Jewish courts during the time of Jesus in Jerusalem? Well, in verse 40 here of your text, we read of the king of the south. And this is, again, that, that Ptolemy dynasty that we've been following. This king has decided to go against the Roman regime. And, and what's going to happen? By the way, who is this king? You remember famous Mark Antony and Cleopatra? The last of the Ptolemy line over the Egyptian throne. You know them. They, they were kind of like a, the B.C. John F. and Jackie Kennedy, weren't they? You know? Well, Mark Antony resists Rome. Guess what happens? Octavius of Rome declares war against Egypt. This is all in your Bible. Well, not the Kennedy's part. I made that up, but stay with me. The author continues, Octavius would later be renamed Augustus Caesar. Augustus Caesar, first of the line. This Ptolemy dynasty finished off. Rome would overpower Egypt, year 31 B.C., there were a few territories, and your Bible tells you, look at verse 41. There's a few territories that would remain out of Roman hands, but Rome would come to be the top dog that they were. Almost the whole world would answer to them. Verse 43. It's all here. It's all here in our Bibles. And like Egypt, someone would try to rise up against Rome, but it was useless. Rome would exercise its power over the Jews. But there's a promise here in the text. There's a promise here we want to pay attention to. Verse 45 of Daniel chapter 11 would promise their eventual fall as well. Trouble coming, but God was still in control, wasn't he? So if there's one thing the prophet Daniel would have to accept near the end of his life, seeing this, hearing this, trying to make sense of this, how would you like to be in his shoes? Could you go back a little bit on that vision? I missed some details, you know? Exile over or not, there was trouble coming. And it was going to last for a little while. What would you do if you received a, a vision like this about the powers to be over your loved ones? Other than ask your spouse what you had for dinner last night. It'd be difficult to process. you think, what good could possibly come? We're going to have struggle for so many more years. But, you know, we, we, we tend to look at trouble coming, problems ahead of us from just one angle, don't we? Just, just from where we stand in the present. You know, sometimes a solution can present itself when we approach our circumstances differently. Think if there's another angle, and I know this seems like a stretch, but think if there's another angle we can uh, maybe approach 500 years of future struggle at the hands of warlords like Daniel was facing. What good could come from this? Edward DeBano, Oxford professor and lecturer on what he calls lateral problem solving, tells the following story about a problem faced by executives of a large company. The story goes like this. The company had just moved into a new city skyscraper, but the builder uh, didn't seem to have put in enough elevators for everyone. The employees of this company were disgruntled by the, the long waits for the elevator, especially at the beginning and the end of their workday. 
So they, they got a wide cross-section of staff together and asked them to sit down and solve the elevator problem. The task force eventually came up with four possible solutions to this struggle. Number one, speed up the elevators or arrange for them to stop at certain floors during rush periods. Okay, that, that, that's solution number one. Solution number two, stagger working hours to reduce the demand for elevators at both ends of the working day. That was solution number two. Solution number three, stay with me here. I've not lost my mind or jumped into another sermon. This will connect. Solution number three, install mirrors around entrances to all elevators. Install mirrors. Solution number four, drive a new elevator shaft through the building. After much consideration, the company chose the third solution, and amazingly, people were happy. It worked. People became so preoccupied with looking at themselves, or others, said DeBono, that they no longer noticed the wait for the elevator. The problem was not the lack of elevators. It was the impatience of the employees. Now, which of those four solutions would you have chosen? to fix this elevator problem. Speed up the elevator, stagger working hours, or add an elevator shaft. These were all solutions chosen by traditional, or the professor argues vertical, I'm assuming no pun intended with that, you know, narrow thinking, narrower thinking. The third solution, add mirrors around entrances. This was a solution chosen by broader thinking, lateral thinking. I'd like to say it's thinking outside the box. But what, is it, what in the world does this have to do with the, the Jews under the thumb of one leader waiting on a future leader to conquer and enslave them and ultimately another leader with an empire to uh, force them to do things the Roman way? Well, Israel could approach their trouble coming from their own perspective. Or they could consider things not from their own angle, but from God's angle. Outside the box. It's been said that when we turn our attention to God, when we turn our attention to worship, we shift our focus from our problem or our problems to focusing on the problem solver. And perhaps the problem historically with God's people isn't a lack of grace that we've received from God. It's our impatience. It's our impatience, and it's been that way for us since we grew tired of all that manna God was allowing us to have in the desert. In this broken world, we, we want life to go smoothly and, and problem-free, and in case of hard times, we don't want to have to wait on God to come through in his timing to make things right. And we talked about this a little bit last week in our message on prayer. You know, when I'm stuck in traffic or my freezer breaks down or, or one of my kids won't listen to me or I break my leg in a bike accident or, or uh, somebody stabs me in the back or gives me a cold shoulder for six months, what, what's my angle? I mean, if you literally got a knife in your back, you might go to the hospital. But I'm not exactly thinking about God's perspective, am I? Usually, typically, the time when I'm going through these things. And when I consider the vision that Daniel's been given here, maybe not knowing the definition of every single word, but when I consider the way this would have come at Daniel and his perspective, I think, man, it's a good thing God doesn't give me a glimpse of the next 500 years, you know? 
Like he's disclosing this kind of information to Daniel. Have you ever thought of that? Don't you think there's a reason we're not given the details on our own death? For, would, would that information turn most of us into sinners more into angels or demons? Our biggest trouble is considering where God's coming from, amen? Biggest problem. If I get sick and I pray God heals me, instead of physical healing, God takes me home. Wasn't that too an answer to prayer? Of course it was. If ever Caesar were to come to town to conquer, to destroy Jerusalem, would we, if we were in the shoes of those Israelites, after hundreds of years of struggle, after hundred years of exile, would we think past where we stood? Would we remember the necessity of waiting on God to hang on and keep an eye out for our Savior? Remember back at the beginning of our book, back at the beginning of uh, Daniel, the temple and the city of Jerusalem were conquered, right? The beginning of the exile, chapter 1. Well, here we're looking at the temple and the city of Jerusalem again, one day being conquered. Chapter 11 seems like kind of a bleak book. But where's it all going? What God's people to which the book of Daniel points, what they're looking toward is a day in Jesus Christ. Not to a day of world conquest and physical retribution, but spiritual restoration for eternity. The time of the end, the time when God's kingdom is established through his son Jesus Christ. This meant that salvation would be found in him. No longer would God's people be dependent on physical Jerusalem or a temple at all. But God himself would come and bring people to life by his very words. John 5, 25. God incarnate would deliver his people himself through death, burial, and resurrection. Imagine the comfort that could bring to those in persecution under the thumb of ancient Rome. The Holy Spirit one day would be poured out on all believers. The book of Daniel was a heads up to Jews everywhere that, hey, there's trouble on the way, but so is the Lord. In Daniel's chapter 11, as we've arrived at this morning to chapter 12, bring this message that God would use Rome's platform over Israel, this trouble coming, to come to God's people directly, to come to us right where we are, no matter where or when on earth we suffer for him. Daniel chapter 12 is incredible. It's marking the end of the Jewish age, faith-wise, bringing on the beginning of Christianity, essentially bringing on the last days we're in. Book of Hebrews, the author writes, do you remember, first chapter, verse 2, but in these last days God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. During the reign of the Romans, when Christ was born, the kingdom of God came with him, and so did these last days. And as we wait still today for Jesus to return again, a second time, not the first, that waiting's over with. But as we wait still today, besides the Lord himself, we also have the greatest angelic power in existence on our side in spiritual war warfare, just as we always have. And we're ready for our highlighted text this morning. And isn't it incredible how the Bible gives us this information? We heard this earlier. The Bible says at that time, what time? The time of Jesus Christ in the year of our Lord, these last days. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who is charged of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Verse 2. 
And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Imagine hearing these words when they were written. For 600 years since the Jews had been taken to Babylon, they'd been waiting for their promised land again. Well, God would one day bring them everything they'd been waiting on. But it, it didn't matter that the promised land was seized by pagan rule. God's perspective was infinite. 2,000 years later, it still doesn't matter that the so-called Holy Land is seized by pagan rule. The, the actual physical location of the Holy Land. Did you know Jerusalem is 90% Muslim today? 90%. The locals love taking money from American Christians, but the pagan Allah is definitely in control of the territory. We're busy fighting over Palestinian real estate down here. Meanwhile, God's perspective is spiritual, not physical. Spiritual. The emphasis in God's kingdom is no longer on where, but who is important. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. When we read this text today, uh, we know exactly which book the prophet is, re is referencing. That same book of life containing the names of those redeemed by Jesus, Revelation 13.8, Philippians 4.3. Now, after all this revelation Daniel's been given, uh, he's ready to find an Arby's, right? <laughs> His desire is to know more details, the text tells us. Look, look through verse 6 here in, in chapter 12. Remember, Daniel's been given a timeline for Jerusalem's destruction in Daniel chapter 9. But what's interesting here, as we come to the end of this vision, is how God gives Daniel a little more information that he can understand. In previous visions, there's been given an interpretation, a meaning. There's no meaning of the vision here, like there was in those previous chapters. The future will just have to play out as it does until the time of Christ and the fall of Rome. But look at what God does say to Daniel here in verse 9, if you've got your Bibles open. Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. There was enough trouble ahead for God's grace to give glimpses of it to God's people through the prophet, wasn't there? But one day, through the blood of Jesus and his amazing grace, many would, verse 10, purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined and be trouble-free for an eternity in God's kingdom. God doesn't give away all the details of what's coming through the prophet. He doesn't give everything away. But one day Jesus Christ would, wouldn't he? One day Jesus Christ would give up everything through the cross. If God's people could just hang on to God's promises to be kept from one perspective, God's own. That's where we uh, leave off here in the book of Daniel. But you know, as we draw to a close of our study here, maybe we're tempted to ask, why so much repetition? Why are Daniel's, uh, you know, chapter 7 to 12 written at such a depth? It seems like such a simple message, doesn't it? Hang on and trust God? That's basically the message? I don't know about you, but that's a message I need to hear time and time again. That's a message every chapter, every verse, every word of my Bible says to me. Hang on 
and trust him. God's people of ancient exile needed to hear it. God's people of modern exile do too. May nothing hold us back from this message. Eric Weinmeier, the, the mountain climber who scaled the tallest mountains in the world while blind. When we hear of this condition, we think, well, how? How did this happen? How is this possible? One author writes, Eric was born with a disease called retinoschisis, and by the time he was 13, he had no vision at all. None. Rather than focus on what Eric could not do, Eric made the choice to focus on what he could do, and he went much further than anyone expected. And brothers and sisters, the world is coming at us to destroy us if we're one of God's people, no matter when on the timeline we live. And the reason is simple. We don't belong in this world, and we never will. But God's people can overcome trouble coming, like Daniel by learning to depend not on what we physically see happening on the world around us, the trouble that is everywhere, but on where God has given us spiritual vision. Amen? God's promises are right here in his word. Verse 13, that we shall rest and shall stand in our allotted place at the end of the days. What's within you? What's within you? is stronger than what is in your way. Depending on God himself, on his words, no matter what's coming at you until Jesus does. Our fear needn't be in any trouble coming, only the overcomer. Would you pray with me? God, I pray this morning that your word in all the complexity we may find, some of the text from our perspective, just as uh, those did thousands of years ago who received it. I pray, Lord, that, that the simplicity of the message would, would come true. You are great. You are holy. You are sovereign. You are God. And all that lives, lives to give you glory. Lord, I thank you that you have revealed things to us from your perspective. Perspective of eternity. Lord, help us not to get hung up on the details of time. Help us to be stronger than the circumstances we're in. The hardships that we suffer. The difficulties that we face. Lord, we know that the whole world and your whole word points to you. Help us to live our lives in a way that, that, that we do the same. There's so much around us that is temporary, that is passing. Guard our hearts, Lord, from, from, from allegiance, from giving ourselves to to those things which are of this world and are limited. Lord, help us remember that every day we fight a, a great spiritual battle 
But Lord, it's, it's one that you've already won. One day, Lord, you're going to return again, just as you did the first time, except this time you'll be taking us home. Lord, keep us ready. Keep us prepared for that day. Keep us fit spiritually. Help us to grow stronger. Lord, may we, may we seek opportunities every day to let other people know they're invited to come along with us too. Lord, I, I thank you for the grace and the mercy that you show to us. Even those times that we, do, we don't realize it. We don't know all the ways that you're, a, that you're at work for us. Everything going on in the spiritual realm. And we don't need to. We've seen by the cross what you do for us. Help us, Lord, to carry that with us everywhere we go. As we wait. As we wait. Lord, we pray that you would come back quickly to us. Take us home. Get us out of this place. Keep us safe. Hold us close to you. Lord, we, we groan inwardly as we wait for that day. Keep us ready. In Jesus' name, I pray these things. Amen. And if some of the words maybe we've, we've used or some of the text we've covered this morning is, seems confusing or um, uh, beyond your grasp today, uh, you have questions, you're, you're invited to uh, meet with me or see me or email me or uh, we'll talk about it more with you. When we get into the books of prophecy, sometimes it's difficult to keep, keep things coming out in a way that everyone can understand within the time we're allotted. I know Paul preached till midnight, but I've been told that's not generally a good idea. God has a love for you that uh, he's shown in, in an incredible way. Uh, this, this cross we have up here, we're reminded each week. And if you haven't made a decision to carry that cross too, to go down into those waters of baptism and come up New creation, as the Bible tells us. And this is your time to do that. We invite you to come forward. We're going to stand and sing. We have an invitation here. All about that, as we sing this song, Our God Saves. Would you stand?